Please sweet on the Enneagram journey. You're right. I am an addict. I've hurt all my friends and family with my addiction. I will accept this gift of rehabilitation. I'm proud of you, but also a bit fearful that we're verging on what I call feelings territory. So let's stare at the fire in silence. And I think when you focus on flaws first, because that's how you see. Over the years, you know, I've been teaching for 25 years. And over the years, people fours tell me that the reason they focus on the flaws first is because they don't want to be disappointed later. Yeah. And my question for you would be, does that mean you don't want to be disappointed in you or in the decision? I would say uh, those two things are so closely related that I don't know I could separate. You sit low to the ground as a sign of mourning. That's why they're like Okay. That. Don't some people sit shiva for just like three days? Yes, mm -hmm. I've seen that. That's oh, a yeah. thing. Wow. Nope. It's not a that? thing. Maybe that could be our thing. It can't be Maybe your thing. There is no... Okay, this is we why. We can pioneer that. We're not going to pioneer it. Nobody here is going to pioneer it because the word shiva is Hebrew for seven. Seven days, no work, no travel. Your ass is in those seats. That's it. Those are the rules. Well, I'd love to find the word for three because I don't think Stop dad... Stop it! Had was your father's dying wish and you're negotiating? It's the Enneagram Journey Podcast. Today's episode is the first of the Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness Live series. My name is Joel, and this episode was recorded at the Renewal Center in Tomball, Texas, with guests Aaron Edwards and Kelly Hall, both Enneagram Fours. Today's episode, we're going to hear a lot including LTM's newest merchandise idea, a bumper sticker that makes a ton of sense and is already trademarked, how has the Renewal Center made it through the pandemic, and how two fours work together. Let's talk recovery, codependency, and hear the tale of a tense funeral from the Reverend, as well as some Q&A. Before we get to hear it, though, it's plug time. A lot of countdowns on the old calendar. Where will we go from here with Suzanne, Joe, and Brian McLaren is less than three weeks away. Did you know that registration, both in person and online, gets you access to the replay of the event, as well as your own copy of the MP3 teaching for you to keep for forever and listen to a million times, because that's how good this content is going to be. Learn about the four stages of faith, Enneagram and discernment and our orientation to time, and how to translate the religious life to the secular. You can find the link in the show notes as well as at lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash where will we go. What is less than four weeks away? The Anagram Journey Toward Wholeness in Austin, Texas. What's less than six weeks away? The Anagram Journey Toward Wholeness in Richmond, Virginia. And what is less than eight weeks away? The Anagram Journey Toward Wholeness in Portland, Oregon. Live interviews with a five and an eight couple, a four and a nine who host a competing Anagram podcast, and a mother-son combo who are six and a five who also minister together. Registration and information for all three stops is up and available. Lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash tour22, tour22. Uh, you can also find the links for all these events on the LTM homepage. I hope that we get to see you there. And now to hear from our latest trip on the Anagram Journey Toward Wholeness Tour with Kelly and Aaron. But now, so I don't have to use the applause button, let's give it up for the Enneagram Godmother and Aaron and Kelly. Um, how fun is this? Like, I, 
I like this space a lot. I like these people a lot. Um, I know lots of folks, but I don't know lots and lots of folks that I would trust my heart with. These two I would. Um, if you uh, don't hang out with us on any kind of regular basis, then you might know that might not know that I always start every event by introducing Joe um, because he's um, the love of my life and the best human being I've ever met. And the reason behind any thing of value, probably, that I do, um, it's a privilege and an honor to be married to him. And I, we didn't go to sleep till 1.30 this morning because I'm teaching all new material tomorrow and I'm working on that. And um, he was valiant and stayed up with me till 1.30 and I sure did wake him up at 4 to tell him how much I love him. <laughs> So I tried not to. I just couldn't help myself. I wanted to wake up at 10 till 4. So that's how hard I tried. <laughs> so uh, aside from being the best person I know, he's fun and smart and good and all, all the stuff. I've had so many people talk about walking into the Micah Center, which is our center in Dallas, and say that it feels like holy ground. And I've had that experience from time to time. But I had it again tonight. And I think what makes it holy both places is it's a place where um, Jesus is doing all the stuff and we try to stay out of the way. Yeah. I think holy ground is getting harder and harder to find or to feel maybe. Maybe it's everywhere and we just can't feel it. But I can sure feel it here, and that was before I knew about the muffins. So it's all good. <laughs> I um, think the best place to start is for me to tell you a little bit about why I wrote the book I wrote, and then I'll talk to these two about what they're doing here, and then we'll talk about how that fits with the new book, maybe. I got some things, too. Do you have a thing or two? Well, you want to start or you want me to? No, no, no. You keep going. I'm just saying. You got stuff? Yeah, I'm prepared. Okay. It's this a hot is an, seat tonight. This is an interesting position for us to be in because you cannot communicate with me non-verbally, which you usually do a lot of, Joel Stabile. I know, but I'm... And never, you get to lord over us the, right now. I am, yes, like three feet taller than y'all. This feels really great. So. You're always three feet taller than me. So, <laughs> so let me tell you why I wrote the book. Um, I, I was never going to write a book ever because I believe the Enneagram is best taught orally. And I think that's the best way to learn it, actually. I think you can hear differently than you read. I think you can find yourself differently in stories that are told than read. And so I was never going to do it. And then we started turning down far many more invitations than we were able to accept. And I thought, well... Maybe. The road back to you is the result of that. And I think it's the best primer available. I'm hopeful that it's helpful. I'm also clear that it's not necessarily being used in the ways I would have it used in this era of trendy Enneagram. And I um, would rather have it in the body of Enneagram work than not because... 
It's good, accurate material. Second thing, as soon as people find out their Enneagram number, then they want to know about other people. So then I wrote the path between us because everybody wants to know about relationships. And the key to that is knowing about other people, not knowing how you want everybody to treat you. And I think that's a really great book, and I think relationships are in a terrible, terrible hurt, and I feel great about it. And then I wrote this book. And I wrote this book because of the kind of work that we all do, all three of us do, along with Joe and Joel, of course. And it's about finding a way to understand yourself in relationship to God and in relationship to other people and about a commitment to do something about all of those relationships and how you can only affect the world and make it better by practicing what's better rather than critiquing what you don't agree with. And the only way that you can do that is if you understand what you get right and what you get wrong and how other people experience you and who you are in a larger context than this is me and it's all about me and it's all about stuff I want and I like and blah, blah. So, Aaron and Kelly, how does that fit with what you're doing? And you get longer. (laughs) Joel's going to give me longer, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. I'm going to give you all the time you need. And this is something that Aaron and I talked about, or Aaron and Kelly and I talked about, was that I just think the world knows about y'all because of how much time we've spent together over the past two years and i don't know did anybody here tune into the ltm all day thing like a year and a half ago see man i thought that the world saw that uh, but aaron and kelly still were still a well-kept secret yeah, yeah aaron and kelly were on that tell people about yourselves and then answer suzanne's question and then we're in it well thank you yeah you know when we go up to be with the stabils up at life in the trinity you know they have the their kind of phrases solitary work that can't be done alone and um it's it it's brilliant i mean it's brilliant it should be on many bumper stickers but at the same time we also have to remember that the solitary work that we're there to do that can't be done alone is solitary work i mean if we all walked in there saying the person i'm coming to open for healing is me and I can do that in front of other people, and I'm not trying to heal other people. That really resonates with what we have here at the Renewal Center as a way to allow um, people in various walks of their journey to be able to um, do their healing. And some people, they're here way before they're ready to heal. And so, which bounces back onto us for us to do us to do more of our healing work. So, yeah, we love what we do. This is kind of part ministry, part social experiment. Uh, when we open our doors up to all who will come, and uh, we've seen amazing things. A lot of times, people on the outskirts of society uh, kind of stay on the outskirts, and when we invite them into front and center right in the middle of, of downtown Tomball, Texas, and we get them sitting at tables across the table from our friend who's the president of the Chamber of Commerce 
and they both walk away feeling like they learned something and taught something. And there is always something to give, always something to receive. And we really wanted to create a, a place where that was welcome. We also emphasize uh, recovery spirituality because a lot of what we do, that's I think what attracted us at first to the Enneagram was, wow, that's a whole nother way to see that you aren't the thing that is gotten getting you in trouble that, you know, I mean, the Enneagram teaches you what you're not. And it's the same thing with recovery spirituality. It teaches us that, you know, one thing we say every week in our groups is it's not that we're recovering from something. We're recovering something that was always true that maybe God told us before we were born that we forgot and we're, and we're remembering we're literally remembering. That's why I think it's such a lovely dance partner to have recovery spirituality with Enneagram wisdom. And I think that we can get really far with those. You just pointed at me. And, and honestly, what I've been thinking for a good amount of time is like solitary work that cannot be done alone as a bumper sticker is actually really a doable thing. I think you should really, <laughs> I mean, it, hashtag traffic, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, really, that really works. Yeah. We're yeah. all doing our solitary um, That is what driving in traffic is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. It just now clicked for me. Like driving, sol yeah. <laughs> solitary work that can't be done alone. Like yeah. I'm getting where I'm going. I need y'all to help me do this. Yes. Right. Sorry. Light bulb went off way late. Yeah. My bad. Um, yeah, the Renewal Center, uh, when I came on um, to this really beautiful project, it just became a place that I felt at home to just turn my heart over to. And we just let, like, for me, um, I just really felt like I could be carried by what the Spirit kept bringing alive and so that's kind of what I feel here. And I think that's what um, people that haven't, that come here like unsuspecting, thinking they found a good coffee shop or, or they, you know, they come for the waffles, but they come and they get a little bit, it's a little bit twitchy and they're kind of looking around trying to figure out like what's kind of going on with me that I don't know there's something else. And so it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place. What I love about it is the unexpected encounter of the spirit that happens that draws people to people. So they come in, they they fall in love with the staff, the staff falls in love with the customers. I hear my, our staff talking about all these people that they love all day long. You know, we have our transient people that come through feeling right at home and, you know, learning boundaries and learning... Um, what love looks like that may not look like it every other place. It's just like other this other aspect of love. I don't think that we have like the corner on anything. I just think here we are expressing how love is to us. And we love it when people come into it. Because it, it brings it up more alive. More miracles. Yeah. Feels to me like the, the 
thing that I have heard through the years is that you help everybody assimilate everybody. Not undocumented Americans or people who are homeless or um, without a structure that is a house or uh, people who are kind of afraid of community. It's like it feels like an assimilation project where everybody is constantly assimilating. And it makes sense that it's easier to make room for people to assimilate if you know the nine ways of seeing and why people are behaving the way they're behaving. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing, which makes it where we don't necessarily have, you know, a lot of a lot of times it's hard to explain to people that are saying, yeah, I want to, I want to give to your ministry. I want to support you because like it's, it doesn't have the thing, Mm -hmm. but, but the thing shows up every time somebody walks in the door and, uh, and it's about making room for that. And, uh, and we do have very practical way. I mean, this is definitely a four place, but we definitely also have practical ways of, of uh, you know, practical assistance ministries. We have a, a women's sober house, um, things that are uh, tangible, but there's a lot in the intangible where people walk away uh, maybe a, a step closer to transformation. And, and that's what, what we kind of live for. One thing is I'll... I love about the way our ministries intersect too is that we can't either one give you an elevator speech about what we do and we don't care. Yeah. It's like, yeah, no. If we get stuck between two floors perhaps. Yeah. But from here to the fifth floor, no. Yes. Okay, we we spoke that. about that. We opened the date. Look at that's the look that's on your face when that happens to you, just so you know. <laughs> You should know that there's a... It's literally on Do Not Disturb, but it was one of my kids, and they're the only ones allowed to break through. There you go, and, and they should be. And she's 20 weeks pregnant, so... Uh, I saw that the color was red. Was that pink? Yeah. Okay, I might have an issue. All right. Well, I was like, that's interesting that they went with a non-binary color for... Uh, <laughs> I was like, what do you... We'll see. Wait, very progressive. Yes. I have a quick question. What, was someone mid-sentence before your phone went off? Yes. Just me. Okay. Just Suzanne, <laughs> Yeah. Not important. I mean, come on. Man, recovery spirituality. Is there not a better term for the Enneagram work than that? So with recovery spirituality, just kind of that term in general, and then we're talking about actual recovery from addictions, which if if you think you don't have an addiction, read Richard Rohr. And it's, yeah, we all do. Or and just be honest can, with yourself. Can, can I say something about that real quick, Joel? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the in the ten year anniversary version of uh, Breathing Underwater, um, in that version, Anne Lamott wrote the forward, and she was talking about how one of the most beautiful sentences she's ever read, which wasn't profound at all, but Richard Rohr said, "Stinking thinking is the universal addiction." And, um, and so she was saying that was the most profound (laughs) sentence I've ever read. And she said that there's this thing sometimes in AA where people, uh, answer 20 questions. It's 20 questions uh, about your alcohol consumption to kind of help you decide, do maybe I am an alcoholic. 
and it'll ask questions like, has drinking ever affected your primary relationships? Has drinking ever affected your work relationships and um, finances? Finances. Do you ever drink alone? Things like that. And she said that um, Anne Lamont in that forward said that she replaced the word drinking with the word thinking. For all of those questions, you know, has thinking ever damaged your primary relationships? Do you ever think alone? <laughs> and, um, and, and answered yes to all of those. And it's really the great equalizer to help us know that we all have the way Suzanne calls it habitual pattern ways of thinking. Um, she's literally describing the universal addiction that, that goes out into sometimes substance abuse. Sometimes it goes out into alcoholism. Sometimes it goes out into gambling, sex, and then sometimes it goes out to my, my addiction to the needing you to think of, of me a certain way. What will I do to make you think of me a certain way? And then to be able to break that down with the Enneagram is... Gold. Yeah, it's gold. It's gold. So um, y'all were in advertisement earlier and talking about this space for balance, which is the new book. And it's because I'm seeking understanding that we need to be balanced in thinking, feeling, and doing. So you said, this is really a four-place... Feeling, 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 feeling. If you didn't feel it, it's feelings. But we do four, some practical. But we do some practical That's things. That's exactly right. That came <laughs> next. But we do some practical things, which is doing. And then there was doing with in the go in there because they've got coffee for you and muffins for you and all the good. So we're doing and we're feeling and we got a thing doing down there and all of that is a result of the way we think about recovery. And so when, when those things come together, then number one, there's an entry place for everybody. Whether or not you're heart-centered, head-centered, or doing-centered, there's an entry ramp for you because it's all available in the whole thing. And what we've done, unfortunately, in most organizations is um, use two of the three at best, and the entry ramp is usually only one of the three. And then lots of people don't connect. And I, I particularly respect in the two of you, and I'd like to know how you did it. I don't know if you do it in tandem by challenging each other the way we do, but how did you get yourself past or beyond is better a lot of fourness like y'all aren't your average force you're you're you excel in fourness <laughs> i don't think oh, any four God. wouldn't say that they excel at their fourness. <laughs> i don't yeah. even know if i'm supposed to say thank yeah. you to that one uh, we're yeah. looking at the crowd i don't now know what to think forward. right now yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just have a lot of feelings about that so there was a lot of foreignness right to get over uh there was a lot of foreignness to get over um beyond beyond beyond. let's don't do over 
Okay. Because yeah, you don't have to get over it. Yeah. You just have to. Here I am. You have to wrap your arm around it. <laughs> there I don't you know go. If bring it with you. you. Yeah, That's right. But wrap That's your right. arm around it and bring it with you. I'm I'm looking for specifics because that'll be really helpful. Like if we're talking about being doing repressed. Are we talking about um, being elaborate? Are we talking about? I, like, I, think, she, I think she's talking about how do we build a community from two fours? Because that doesn't make sense, right? That's That does not make sense. Yeah. But it makes for good community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what the, the most four thing about this place is our ability to bear witness to pain. Because that shows up every day. And we don't feel like we have to avoid it when it shows up. Which makes room for some healing. I think that's the most, I think that's the most healthy four thing. What I would like to do is just speak from my own experience. Like coming to work here, I had to learn a whole lot and I was kind of on like an accelerated it was like an accelerated experience because I came out of working as an editor and a writer on different projects and kind of always um, doing a little bit of ghostwriting and kind of always producing things for other people and um only in maybe my own art and poetry was I really expressing myself. And when I had some damage done from the church world, and I had left the church and was kind of um, monastic to a degree, just like going out into my backyard, listening to my kids laugh, finding God in these simple pleasures, you know. And... Um, People just would come to the house, and they'd kind of wander around my house, and I'd be like, can I make you a smoothie? And they'd be like, yes! And it'd be like, so this is like, it, it was just kind of how I started to grow. And when I came here, um, I had just left a pastoral assistant job where it was just a lot of, it just wasn't a fit. Like, administratively, I'm administratively challenged. I can do it. But as I get older, less and less, because I, I don't have, I think as I'm healing in my codependency and my people pleasing, I'm just kind of going, that's really, it's kind of not me, you know? Um, it's, and then when I came to see you and I heard you say, I can do this, but is it mine to do? Then I really opened my hands and dropped a lot of bags. I dropped a lot of things I was carrying. Um, but here, I... I remember coming in here when after we took all the walls down, and I remember kneeling in the middle, and I remember just feeling like, and this is very four. Let's just, we'll just, whatever. Everything about you is very four. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just wrap our arm around it. So just, you know. This is what I felt like. I felt like a, a, a seed fell out of my heart mm -hmm. right into the middle here. And it was the most... It was the deepest, most gratifying, most touching prayer that I think I ever experienced. And I just said, I will. And so then I kind of got caught up in just like when the things started happening. It's like, thank God I got surrounded by people that were just waiting. Like, give me what you got. And so I, I had to learn to share. That's. That's one of the big things I had to learn was to share. 
And what I had to learn to share was creativity, space. Like, I had to let go of some of my individuality. I had to do a lot of big things. I had to learn to create and let go and create and trust. And then I had to learn how to create and trust and let other people create in too. And I just, um, it just kept showing up not as less, but as more. But the grieving and the going through it, there was like a just hard wrestling, like hard learning how to let go and let God and let others and make room and open up. And, um, and so we just had, we had two ex-cons that built this place. Like they came in and built this place and they just would say, what do you want this to look like? And I'd pull up a picture from Pinterest and I said, I want this bookshelf. And the next thing you know, it's up on the wall, you know? And so it's just, we just were really blessed by people that were looking for, just give it to me. And so if I could get it out, if Aaron could get it out, we had people to turn it over to and say, okay, like, this is how the DNA of this place is going to be shaped. It's not going to be an individual, like, you know, belief system that's going to, like, people are going to surround me like, oh, look at this individual's belief system. This is a, like, the DNA here is, like, what everybody puts into it, and it just keeps evolving. And as spiritual as we are here, um, I think Christians are more confused by this place than, than anybody else because of the fact that we, we invite everybody, just everybody. So I went through a lot of late nights. I'd get home and my Apple watch would say, you've been standing on your feet for 16 hours, you know, creating juice blends or looking at trying to make the waffle recipes work, all of those things. So I had to go through all these breakdowns, like our breakthroughs or whatever, just like, I can't, God will you, you know, so it's, there's just been a lot of that, and then in our partnership, it's been kind of the same thing, just kind of like two creative people with two ways of doing things that are both good, and both ours to do, but just having to figure out how to compromise, how to open up, how to not, how to be a team, not be individuals, you know, just, I think. I think so too. I think so too, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you just reminded me. I, I thought about like I'm on. Sometimes we say we're on the ed, we're on the verge of a nervous breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. A question and propose a hypothesis based on what you asked, Mom. I gotta make it personal so she'll get a you know give me some some strength. Losing now. Yeah. Now he's making up. I've heard you say in the past, of all the enneagram numbers, fours are the fewest. Do you still believe that? I do. So with that information, my experience, and I think our experience with churches, especially in, let's just say we're, you know, in Texas, that the leadership is most commonly uh, threes and sevens. Correct. Just, just most commonly. And so when you asked that question earlier about how, you know, two, four is doing it, I think it's because that's what, that's what people can't find. That's my question. Is it because people can't find that elsewhere? Like, how many fours do you know in senior leadership at all the big churches that we're at? So when you're asking about, man, how are y'all making it work? Is it because that's what people are looking for that they can't find elsewhere? That's my question. 
And then I'll be quiet for a long I, time. I thought she was asking because of our tendency to brood and push and pull as much as we do. That is not why I was asking. Oh. I would have said, why do you brood and push and pull as much as you do? But I don't, I don't think you do that. I think you found your way past that. But I guess I could be wrong. Well. Um, so here, here's what I want to talk about from way back. Um, I think bearing witness to pain has two sides. And I keep hearing about it, about its other side, from people for whom those who loved them were so able to bear witness to their pain that they didn't get them any help when they needed it. And so where do we put that in terms of foreness and recovery or not? And... Like, I, you know, I can't think, not Enneagram, I guess y'all can't think, not recovery either. Uh, when you swim in this water all the time, then that's what you've got. But I, I wonder about people who come through the doors here or in your lives or anywhere else where we have the gift of having fours on board who can do the thing that the rest of us can't do, which is bear witness to pain without having to say, you know, you need to get back out there. And um, we hear some of the most horrific things at funerals. The most. People say the stupidest things to people who have just lost a child or the their every other heartbeat or like people say such ridiculous things because they don't know what to say and they don't know how to be present and they're nervous. So I have a lot of grace for that and it's really bad. And it's because people don't know what to do with pain that you can't fix or suggest a fix for. It's like if somebody's in pain and you can suggest the fix, then you feel like you're off the hook. I did my part, which is not always true. Here's the question. How do you know when it's time, particularly dealing with people in recovery, to say, yeah, we, we've done what we can do thus far, and here are the options that we have to offer. And it's not coffee and a muffin and more time to talk about what you've lost or because of your addiction or or. We've learned through the years um, how to get really a lot more solid with our boundaries. Uh, however, um, it's still, it's so individualized for the person that we don't, we don't know. And, and that's really difficult because we're dealing with things that are way out of our pay grade, a lot of the time, you know, we were just having a conversation the other day that, you know, all the homelessness that we see around us for years and years that we could just see in our own experience that the number one reason for homelessness was addiction. And now it seems very much more with mental illness uh, being a reason for addiction. And so we have people here that show up daily that um, are li- are in a different reality that we're in, and and we're holding them to because we do believe that the love that we give out to them, they're receiving it, 
and it means something and it's healing for them in some way. But it gets so iffy. I remember a situation years ago where someone called me. I was on the way to uh, a baseball game with my kids and they were having a really, really hard time, really anxious. And uh, I was kind of running around back then just running toward whoever was screaming the loudest. And, and, and this person had said, like, if you're not at my house in 20 minutes to come talk to me, I'm going to kill myself. And in that moment I had said, I just want you to know ahead of time that if, if I came over to your house, that's me taking responsibility for your life and I'm not responsible for your life. And I hung up and that was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done because I didn't know with my head that that was the right thing to say. Something deep within me stuck by that statement. And then the the next day, obviously, we had a conversation, and and she ended up telling me she appreciated that. Other times, whenever people go out there on, on, you know, we've had four cars, like, from, from church. We've had four cars that belonged to us stolen, and these were people that we love so much, graduated from programs, and they left and never came back. And I don't even think that we never recovered one car because I don't think we ever called the police. I just but, have to reiterate that you are doing the worst job of selling people to come on Sunday. Don't come Sunday. <laughs> and um, and uh, <laughs> get a ride with a friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right, right. I don't mean I don't mean four cars from the people that go to church. I mean four of our cars. Yeah. Uh, one of them was our church van, and who uh, would want a church van? Yeah, well, I mean we 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 did hear about that. That was up on stilts like six months later. We we, but but anyway, um, so much of the time when people leave and then they call and say, "Hey, you need to come pick me up," then they start depending on us to help them in their addiction. So where's the line? Where, where is the line? Not that I haven't done my own year of 12-step work with codependency because, you know, as it turns out, I have. And that's but, what we're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yes. So where's the line? Because that's, that's not your thing yeah. or a two thing. I mean, although I would say, just in my defense is a two, and yours if you are one, we are perfectly equipped to be codependent. So it seems like there's something messed up there. Like I have all the gifts for codependency. Yeah. And it's bad. <laughs> I had to work through that first. So here's the thing. Where, where's the line? Is it always different? Yeah. It's always different? It's always different. No, different. the line isn't always different. But, but each person, what I am capable of doing is always the same. And what I'm not capable of doing is... Always like there's the line. Like I'm not a therapist. I like I don't have. So you, but you know where the line is. Yes. So you're saying. So what's yours to do? Yes. Yeah, so so that's what I think. As I'm hearing, is like as long it requires me to stay doing my work, and it requires me to be in doing my recovery work, and it requires me, like sometimes I meet somebody, and what and I feel it. What they really need is a good hug, and we're good. And sometimes there's a schizophrenic that rolls through and what they need is me to make some calls mm. and help get them off the street. Yep. Sometimes 
there, there's a family member that I have, and they've wrecked their car, they've wrecked the the loner car, and they they need to get into recovery into a program. And what's mine to do is stand in between them and society and say, I I can't let you. I will take you anywhere. Another interesting thing that happens here is I was just telling somebody earlier, it feels like as this keeps evolving, whenever we have a case, then we also almost have a solution that comes through. So it's like partnerships are really important. Mentorships with people like that we care about are really important, you know? I mean, to me, like, but I agree with what Aaron says. Like when each person comes through here, each different personality, each thing they're going through, like we, we do kind of that, you do have an assessment like, okay, this is what I, what's mine to do. This is what I'm able to do. And then there's just stuff that we're not. And we have to say, this is not, a, this happened this, just this last week was a lot of really hard stuff with people that have been in community a long time. Well, let me ask you. So whenever you're working your steps for codependency and whenever you were first having to get to the place where what was coming naturally to you, you couldn't do anymore. Did it ever come to the very point of you saying like, I have to resolve that this might mean that the people I love the most won't be alive anymore? Yeah, got yeah. to that point. Sadly, I wish I'd, you know, we all do wish we'd gotten there before that. But you've heard me talk about it. You may not have. I, um, you know, I get asked to teach a lot in churches for just a Sunday morning. And I got tired of coming up with something new. So I discovered 20 years ago, you can teach anything with the book of Jonah. Anything. Mm. I mean, literally mm. anything. Mm. In fact, I just did it for four weeks. <laughs> and um, I connected Jonah, as y'all know, you may not, to four mantras. And they are, uh, show up, pay attention, tell the truth. All really hard to do. But they don't compare to this one. Don't get attached to the results. And until I was able to keep from being attached to the results of my choices, the right ones, the ones I knew I was supposed to make, I couldn't stop. But once I knew that I'd done what was mine to do and that a new thing had to happen and it had to not involve me and I couldn't be attached to the result of that, then I was able to... Back up. Not go away. Just back up. Yeah. I'll tell you, the other thing that taught me everything, still does, teach me everything. The language of letting go, December 5th. Absolutely. I, oh, my gosh. It talks about how horrible people are, and you have to put up with them anyway. <laughs> it makes me feel great every time I read it. Uh, one thing that you said that really stuck with me, um, you, you said it last time I was up there, but you also said it in your book about um, – the remedy or the cure to exhaustion mm -hmm. uh, isn't ne necessarily rest. It's wholeheartedness. And that really helped me to remember to keep re-upping my inventory to not only what am I wholehearted about, but what was I wholehearted about that I'm not wholehearted about now. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it helps me to see that for people in our community – what looked like helping last year is enabling this year. And, and so for us to stay current 
on what there is for what is ours to do. And it can feel kind of strange because it's like, I know for a fact, whenever I did this for this person, it was mine to do. Why doesn't it feel like it's mine to do now? Because it's not mine to do now, but you have to stay really close to re-upping your inventory in order to do that. Like what was mine to do? That's no longer mine to do. Then we just do the next right thing, you know? That's David White's work in terms of wholeheartedness, and it's actually David Stendelrest's work for David White. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's going to be very difficult for people coming out of COVID to know what they're wholehearted about. Mm-hmm. It's like I used to do, I, I used to be wholehearted about this. Then I, I made up during this time that I wasn't wholehearted about it anymore. But I think I might be still wholehearted about it. But how am I going to know? Am I going to know if it doesn't make me tired? Am I going to know if it makes me happy tired? Like, how am I going to find my way? And one of the things that, of course, we're dealing with in ministry is about half the people want everything to be the way it used to be. Well, there's no such thing. That's over. So I'm sorry. Can't give you that. Then... A lot of people want to move right on ahead because they've got an idea and they've had it for 20 years of what we should be doing anyway. Well, and now nah, we're not going to do that either. Well, what are we going to do? Well, as soon as you say wait, we're just going to wait. Then people just glaze over. You have heard from countless pastors of what you just spoke of. So now in y'all's ministry, what are y'all experiencing with that? The pandemic specifically? Yeah, of people, like, you had your community pre-pandemic. Pandemic has hit. It seems like no community is immune to the, um, I don't know what to say, the issues that that she just spoke of and beyond. I I think for me, when I first felt a real switch in, in culture, wasn't just when the pandemic hit it was it was just in you know 2016 and uh and and the political divides and um that's whenever i started noticing i never would have thought there would be a more difficult thing to overcome in bridging the gap between um between the least of these and those that are front and center in society. And the political divide is even more difficult than, than that. And, and we still house it. We still make room if they can sit with each other. Like Kelly and I are making room for people on the, and I'm, I'm talking about pretty extreme far left, pretty extreme far right. And just like looking at the room saying, okay, I hope this person doesn't say the thing that's going to make this person leave, you know? So for me, uh, when we're holding a space for um, all voices to be able to say, this is where I am right now, that that started for us 2016-ish and then in 2020 uh all of the things that were starting to fire and the political divide 
fired even harder because of the pandemic and, 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 and our ideas about the pandemic, I think the pendulum's starting to swing a little bit back to, to, to center a little bit, but that's just been a really difficult thing that, um, we try to go and borrow from some nine energy in the middle of that. And, and, and then the pandemic itself, of course, made us where, I mean, we already live off faith. We don't know how we keep this place open from month to month, literally. Like we're, it's, I do. We work really hard. We, yeah, but, <laughs> but it's still. And God turns the lights on. Yeah, so. God keeps the lights on. That's for sure. So I mean, and so that was obviously really difficult. Um, but we also always say, you know, um, if God wants this place to be here, it's going to be here, and it's here. In regards to the pandemic and the politics. All of the things that came in the last two and a half years. I mean, it was just kind of an onslaught. To describe it as, for myself, it just keep feeling like walking into a wall whenever I approached a person. It's almost like you hit somebody and like bounced off of them. And it was just so, so disorienting. And I think when it came to like questions about vaccinations or questions about non-vaccinations or or just belief systems about everything I started to wonder like how we were all going to like move forward together it was just it was really disorienting for me as somebody who wanted to like just be able to communicate with people I love with people in here and you know and beyond and I think somehow it's kind of mysterious to me but Somehow here, we tended to thrive during the pandemic. There was a period of time we were closed. And then when we reopened here, we were just like our volume was increasing. Like people were increasing. They were looking for something. And um, and we had our arms open to receive it. And I think being able to like be able to hear, like even just listen to people's opinions and say, okay, like, um, what I need to do is put my recovery, when I have a, when I'm affected, like, I have to go back to, like, well, okay, I can't, maybe God can, and I should let him, you know, and then I have to, I have to kind of just figure out, like, if I'm seeing extremism over here, then I need to figure out where I have it in here, because, and so it's always just, like, out in, out and like looking outward finding it inward and so the Enneagram is super helpful for that because there's just a lot of stuff about myself that I couldn't see there's a lot of stuff about myself that I was so numbed out to that until that especially on that last Enneagram cohort weekend when we talked about shame like I didn't realize that I could be numbed out to something so much that I wasn't even hearing it all the time so I think what I what I think for us during COVID, what, what helped me during COVID is I'm a vaccinated person that had side effects from the vaccine that later got COVID. And so my, the ability to converse about that, all of that expanded because I had a collection of experiences that everybody was worried about. Everybody was on your side for yeah. some part for of it. Yeah. For a minute. For a minute. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's like, oh, I got this middle way to walk through yeah. this now. 
Well, we were, uh, it was Whitney's birthday recently, and we were celebrating her, and we have a good friend who is a chaplain at one of the Dallas hospitals. And I think Joe said to him, so what are you dealing with mostly at the hospital at this point? And this was, what, a week ago? And he said addiction. That's, that's what's happening. People are coming in person after person after person after person who, for the first time, see themselves as addicts because of behavior during COVID or people who were not able to maintain sobriety during COVID. And he said it's serious and scary and it's most of what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's it. So I guess you're going to be busy and busier. And one of the things that I think is happening is that I think when we were alone with ourselves and couldn't stand it anymore, then rather than do transformative work, maybe because we don't have the tools to do transformative work, maybe because we don't know exactly how to put all that into place after we've been, you know, trying. Joe and I took us a month to learn to buy groceries online. It was a devastating time for uh, aging folks. <laughs> and then by the time we figured out how to do it the first time, they said it would be there in four days. Well, that's not helpful. We'd been four days trying to put the list together and get it on there. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like, I, I think that we all, I think many people just couldn't work at it anymore or didn't think they could, and so they found whatever ways of numbing could work for them. And then I think there's the potential that the numbing got bigger than one would have imagined from compulsion, perhaps, to addiction. So y'all have heard me talk a lot about <clears throat> Mary O'Malley's work on compulsions and her def definition that a compulsion is anything you do to manage your feelings that ultimately ends up managing you. One of the questions I've always wanted to ask you, and I think of it, but I'm teaching, or I think of it, and you're in a different group, or I think of it. So I'm thinking of it now, and you're right here in your wow. mind. First of all, do you think compulsions lead to addiction? Is that like the, you better watch yourself? Do you think uh, there's a dramatic difference in compulsions and addictions, and they're not connected? Do you think, what, what do you think about all that? I, I personally think it's possible for there to be a compulsion that's not connected to addiction, but I think that compulsion is definitely connected to it. One thing we say every week and something I say every week at our group was the first sin wasn't the eating of a forbidden fruit. The first sin was the notion that they needed something outside of what they already had access to in order to be okay. And, and that's kind of like the definition of, of that you're giving for compulsion. This, this idea that what I already have isn't enough and I need something outside of what I already have in order to be okay. Well, I mean, that's the root of all addiction. As a matter of fact, Rohr says you could take out the word sin and say addiction in most cases. Uh, and that's the beauty for those of you who are, are Christians that go to church that don't have any connection to um, 
to the steps. I mean, that's the beauty of the 12 steps is you find God in here. While a lot of times we've only kind of found God out here or we found God with our headspace, but you have to find God if you're working the steps because, um, you have to go through a death and then there's a resurrection. So that's the beauty of it is like a lot of the things that we talk about with our faith, um, it's possible for them to be stated beliefs without being experiential. And when you work the steps, it's impossible for them to be stated beliefs without them being experiential. You can't turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand God without going through a surrender. And that surrender is a death. And right on the other side of it is a power greater than we could ever knew was even possible. And then right on the other side of that is a new death. Is a new death. Yeah. Yeah, and a new chance to rediscover. Like living, dying, rising all day, every day. There's the pastoral mystery over and over and over. Over and over and over and over. And And it's Lent. It's true. uh, Speaking of death, not to jump in. So what I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to. Speaking of death. Speaking of death. a good place to jump in, yeah. Did you see him point at me? I don't know. (laughs) Speaking of death. Well, I'm going to reference something that you said you brought up earlier. And then I'm going to hand the microphone to the reverend. So piggybacking on your, Suzanne, opening of the Journey Toward Wholeness teaching, etc. I don't know if anyone is going through the Journey Toward Wholeness study guide or has looked at it yet. It's phenomenal. It's great. Our groups at LTM came across, I think we're in session four. The reason why I pointed you talking about death, you talked about funerals and how people behave. One of the scenarios that we discussed that's in the study guide is a story of the reverend was doing, I'm going to let him tell it. And then the prompt for the group was like, what are your thoughts? Like how, how would you have responded if you had been any party or just uh, another party at this funeral? And so one, I'm super grateful to hear the story. Is it from the horse's mouth? Is that still something people say? He would love it because he loves horses so much. Okay. But let me tell you, he may not know what funeral you're already talking asked. about. Already, okay. Oh, yeah. I already, vetted, I already right. vetted this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So, he already vetted yeah. it. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to pass him the mic. And he's going to tell the story. This story is insane. And let me go ahead and uh, Quinn Tarantino style tell you my response before he tells the story. Anagram 7 here. I was like, oh, my gosh. I can't wait to see the next disaster that's about to happen. And for us to talk about it at the wake. Like, let's have some popcorn and really embellish the ridiculousness that just happened. You should hire yourself out as a Christian available to sit Shiva. <laughs> Do it right. Yeah, you would so, love that. There's refreshment. Yeah. There's food. Yeah. That's you what, tell stories. Yeah. When we, so our group, so people know, we read the scenario and we broke up into stances. The responses that people gave were a lot of the responses were dominated by their dominant stance. The eights said, here's what should have been done. Here's what I would have done. This would not have happened if I had had a role in this. The ones were same thing. It was about doing, yeah. Yeah, can't breathe. And then uh, the nines were like, if someone asked me to do something, like I know what I could do. And we got a nine here in the story. 
Uh, so I'll let him explain his, but it was that it's a great story. I, I mean, I've only read it in print, so I'm very excited right now. And, uh, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the Reverend. Who's going to get a mic. As you started, I'd like for you to know it's been a long time since I've heard Joel say, it's a great story. I can hardly wait to hear it. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily a great story going through the experience, but uh, I'll share it with you. It so happens to be the very last funeral that I officiated as a Catholic priest before I had left the priesthood, and life changed for me. Uh, it happened to be a Hispanic funeral and we had finished the service in the church and had driven to the cemetery for the interment. And um, I rode in the car with the funeral director leading the procession. Uh, We get to the cemetery and the plot happened to be way far in the back corner of the cemetery next to a group of apartment buildings that were near the cemetery. And uh, so we get there and all the people start arriving and the hearse comes. And for some reason or other, they could not turn the motor off on the hearse, which is parked right next to the platform where the coffin is going to be sitting. So the hearse motor is running and they decide to get out and raise the hood to see if they can somehow figure out how to get the motor off on the hearse. In the meantime, they've taken the body out and they've put the body on the platform just above the grave. And we're waiting to get started, hoping that they can shut the hearse off because it's making quite a bit of noise. In the meantime, Back in the apartment building that is right behind us in the corner, there's an argument going on in one of the apartments, and you can hear the gentleman and his wife, I guess wife, the gentleman and the lady who were involved in the argument screaming and hollering at one another up there in the apartment. And in the meantime, the motor is still running and the hood is still up and people are gathering. And the mother of the young man, he was a very young man who had passed away, The mother of the young man was sitting down at the far end of the row of chairs that's right there next to the the coffin. And the wife of the young man was sitting closest to where I was at this end. And they were throwing dirty looks back and forth at one another. And I wasn't really quite sure why that was taking place. But I learned later uh, that they were not happy with each other about the fact that the funeral was going the interment was going to be in a cemetery in Dallas rather than in a cemetery back in Mexico and i learned that that was the from the funeral director who's still trying to turn the motor off on the hearse while the argument is going on in the apartment and then you hear a gunshot in the apartment so you don't know if somebody got shot or what's going on but there's activity going over there I'm just trying to get through the final stages of the interment here. Say a few prayers, get everybody off on their way. In Spanish. All this is taking place in Spanish, by the way. And um, just as I get finished with the final prayers and blessing of, of the body, and the funeral director leaves the hearse that's still running 
to come over and start to lower the body into the ground. The mother gives a signal to the young man's older brother who was there at the cemetery, uh, quite inebriated, he was, and he comes over to the coffin and decides to pick it up because he is now going to carry it back to Mexico because that's where mom really wants the body to be interred, not there in Dallas. I don't know what ended up happening in, <laughs> in the apartment building. Oh, my gosh. Uh, toward the end of the cemetery, there were sirens going on, so I gathered the police were coming to the apartment building. Uh, the hearse was still running when I left, uh, and the hood was still up. Somebody, family members, apparently had tackled the brother uh, with the coffin starting to come off of the platform. Uh, the mother was giving terribly dirty looks to the young man's wife who was sitting at this end, just crying her eyes out. And I washed my hands of the whole situation and left. So that's wow. where it ended. We would yes. still be there. Oh, my gosh. Right? right. You would have gone to check on the people in the apartment. I'd still be trying to deal with the wife. Yes. Uh -huh. And would Joe would be, be gone, there. which actually somewhat mirrors our life. <laughs> I mean, that might be the healthiest way to go. Joe's way, did you just side with Joe? The best thing to do is just go. I think the reverend could have felt like, I need to do what's mine to do, and the rest is none of my business. For One sure, you and I would still be there. For, for sure. sure, for sure. And this is another thing I realized last summer is um, when I was on a family vacation um, and sitting around watching my dad and my two brothers, like I was raised by a three with a seven and an eight for a brother. So like there's just some things that you just like, I think I'm conditioned over time to get up and say, hey, like, like settle down, like get things, you know, it's like, I think some of that energy just rubbed off on me. Like when I hear people arguing stuff, I have like, I have like this desire to kind of just scooch in between them and be like, you know, like, I don't even know, do a dance, do something. Okay, but everybody but then pay attention also, now because fours and nines actually don't usually do anything, right? Because they are doing repressed. So Kelly right. and I would not still be there for the same reason. I would be doing something to solve the problem. And unless little sister popped up inside of you, you would be bearing witness to everybody's pain in an egalitarian sort of way. Right. I understand you. That's I understand exactly right. you. That's exactly what she would be doing. Yeah. But I might right. also go up the stairs and see. She, she might, is, but. Yeah. I'm, oh, I would I'm, have pretty, already, I'm pretty daring. I'm pretty daring. I might have gone up there and been like, who's just shooting guns? No, no, no. I would have already. <laughs> I would have already called the police on my cell phone and right. said there's a problem. Okay, you would have saved me right. then. So, <laughs> so listen to what I'm still doing as a social worker. So I don't know if y'all know, but I used to be a social worker, and I worked with the elderly poor, so I worked with a lot of elderly folks who lived on the street, a high percentage of whom were schizophrenic. And what I do now is when the schizophrenics that are on corners where I am from time to time, I've watched them now long enough to know, that that's what's happening. I just call the police and I say, you don't know me, but you need to trust my professional opinion. This guy's here. I see him all the time. He's obviously not on his meds. He needs to go to Terrell. You need to come get him. It's cold. Thank you. Last time I called, I said, Suzanne Stabile. They said, uh-huh. 
Like, hey, Suze. So, yeah. Hey, Suze, how you doing? Well, still doing my stuff from the corner here. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. why not? So what I think is that we all are learning something. And when we do what's ours to do, without being attached to whether or not they came to get him, whether or not somebody has the gun, without being attached to the results, it is not that hard to show up and do what's yours to do. The hard part is learning to not be attached to the results, and that part's very tricky. I have the same belief as you, like, I tell the staff all the time, look, when things, like, if there's a situation, we need to call the police. This is, we just need an intervention. But I do have some, even as a self-preserving force, some strange bravery. I don't even know what to call it. That sometimes I'm just compelled. And I'll give an example. Down well, before, he, you down go, t- before you do, I want you to stop for a minute because I want to ask you about that. Is it strange bravery or is it deep compassion? Maybe it is deep compassion. Yeah. But this, I, I was say the, the example I was going to tell you is down in the four corners, in the main four corners of Tomball on the corner, uh, during COVID, there was a young man, and I passed by him, and he's singing almost like him out of the hymnal. And he's singing. It's a beautiful voice. And he has this sign, and he's in a suit. And I, I honestly don't, couldn't judge if he was well or not, but he has a sign, and the sign says, God hates masks. And I, I drove by, and I kept going, but my heart kept getting pulled back to this corner, this guy standing, and um, I, I don't advise this, but what happened is I wheeled around, parked my car, and I walked up to him on the corner, and I just wanted to say, hey, what I... I, I don't hold the same belief as you. I don't know what God hates or doesn't hate, but I just want you to know that I heard you. And um, if you ever want to have a conversation about all this stuff, we're right down the street. And that's what I mean by just like a strange... That's deep compassion. <laughs> yeah. That's what that is. Hi, I'm a two. And I recently, a few years back, suffered a a major trauma, church-related. And the wall that I built is so well fortified that I'm not sure where the next step is. Like, I'm not even, um, like, I don't help anymore. I don't, I just like, hi, how are you? Thank you. Have a great day. I'm just so afraid to put myself out there again that I'm not sure what the first step is in that healing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stuck People have said that I like to, um, that it's comfortable and that I, and I kind of re- push against that, but I think maybe it is a little comfortable. I just don't know what the first step is. So as a two to a two, what, what do you got? <laughs> well, maybe you're just tired. You know, there's a difference in being comfortable and tired. And I, I don't know how old you are, but I know that I just woke up one day at the beginning, you know, Joe and I don't talk about first half and second half of life anymore. We did, but now we talk about first, second, and third, and being, I guess, because we're in the third, third, and we didn't know where to put ourselves. But I, I, I know that at the beginning of the end of the second, third, 
and leaning into the third third, I just was tired. And the great, great pain that expresses itself in anger in twos is being taken for granted. And when we are hurt, then we manage to put together all of this story of how we're always taken for granted. We give a lot and everybody just expects more, et cetera, et cetera. And so from that space, we tend to say, I'm done. So since I've been taken for granted, nobody cares anyway, whatever story I've told myself. So I'm finished. Here, here's how bad I get when I'm in that space, how, how average and unhealthy I get. Uh, that's it. I'm not going to your church anymore. I'm done. Done at your church. Kind of done with your God. Like, whatever that means. Like, my experience of God is as deep and wide as his is. It's just that I attach all of those feelings to the fact that he is an ordained clergy person. And that's the place where I can put my pain. And uh, I'll tell you what to do next if it fits in your life and you can. And that is the last day of this month and the first two days of next month. From here to Dallas is three hours and 31 minutes. And Joe and I, along with our friend Brian McLaren, are doing a weekend at First Methodist Church, Dallas. And we're talking about exactly the question you're asking. So where am I going to find my way from here? Because I don't know what to do, and I don't know where to go, and I don't know how to manage that. The thing I would encourage you to not do is don't throw out all of your life and experience in the church with the most recent experience that you've had. Because it's not all good, and it's not all bad, and wherever you are right now, being a part of the church, a church, was part of the creation of the beauty of who you are. And it's when we get hurt, we're all or nothing people. We're either done or we're back in. And it's so embarrassing for me after I've rah-rahed all over Joe about how I'm blah, blah, blah. And then Sunday morning rolls around and I'm ready to go. And I, I, I can tell that you don't feel or have that right now going for you. And my guess is that if you could work with understanding that you're probably God-centered and not church-centered, then you can find a little bit of light that'll make some space for you. And we are, you and I, 100% of the time surrounded by people who have been hurt by the church. And I'm one of them. It's a journey. Just stay on the journey. If you can be with us in Dallas, I believe with everything in me that Joe and Brian will have things to say that will be helpful and meaningful for you. 
And I'm going to throw in a little Enneagram work from time to time. Thank you so much. Mine was really more of just a collection of comments than question, I guess. Um, But I just wanted to say uh, this two friend of mine invited me and I had really no idea what I was coming to, but walked into this amazing place and felt the fourness immediately. And then y'all were sitting here talking about y'all's four selves. And then I'm sat next to this beautiful four over here. And I've never felt so seen in my entire life, I don't think. Um, So that's been really cool. But just, and then not knowing what, what y'all's positions were in recovery and my brother um, is a recovering alcoholic and he's been staying with me building a bookshelf which I was admiring this bookshelf anyway it's just funny how everything has been so beautifully done but um and just I one of the things I keep telling him is that we're exactly the same that I'm not recovering from alcohol or from a substance but that that I've dealt with addiction and that code you know codependency and addiction all these things are so tied together and that um that we're really kind of, I've just recently gone through a divorce and that we've just, we're kind of living the same thing together. Anyway, just hearing y'all talk, it's just, it's it's been really cool. And then just, we both work at a school with special needs kiddos. And I think y'all talking about the not being tied to the results has been the the thing that's probably the biggest struggle for me. And, and I think for her too, is that it's hard to pour into these these babies all day every day and not know what's what's coming and what's um where their lives are going to go from after we you know we're done with them and just know that God has a plan for each one of them and that that's not our job but and that sometimes anyway sorry you know one the only thing I would add to that is a Richard Rohr line uh which is I I I would just say not only is it not your job what God's going to do, but it's also not your business. Yeah, that's Richard Rohr. Hey, that, no, 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 no. That's not me. I leaned up one day for spiritual direction and said, you know, Richard, I, and just imagine having to do spiritual direction with Richard Rohr and this one at the same time. So uh, we were supposed to be there for together for spiritual direction, but somehow one directly. That explains my therapy. Our couples therapy yeah, with me, yeah. my therapist wife, and our therapist. Yeah, there you go. That's my life at Spiritual Direction <laughs> with Richard. But I leaned up and I said, you know, I, like, I'm just, and I was all prayed up and ready. Because when we went for Spiritual Direction, it was New Mexico. We went for five hours. And I said, uh, you know, I'm just not quite sure what God's doing right now. And he said, well, Suzanne, that's not any of your business. So I recovered very quickly and said, oh, no, no, no. I don't mean what God's doing in the world. I'm just not sure what God's doing with me. Yeah, sorry. It's just not your business. It's just not your business, which ultimately is very freeing. Yeah, and it's only embarrassing in the moments when you think it is your business, which I still think frequently. All right, you got one over here? Uh, I was thinking about what you said earlier um, Aaron, about the fact that the political divide is, is so big, you know, and and surprisingly even bigger than the difference between the fringe of society and the and the core. And 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 the question is this: as as I've found myself through listening to new voices and and exploring new things, and you know, ne- neither. 
set of friends, you know, make any sense to me anymore. But they all, when when you're in a place and long term friends, you know, are still way over here or or way over there. Most of them way over some, you know, one side wide more than the other. But how do you make us? Do you have any advice? You've you found a way to make a space where everybody's welcome. And, and, um, you know, maybe you do hold your breath and hope that person doesn't say that thing because of what, but how, how do, how, how do you, what would you say? How, how do you live in that tension where you want to value and honor the, the preciousness of the years you've had with people who no longer can comprehend you? I go back and I look at some motivation of what, of what possible motivation could be because, um, so, so where's the belief coming from and, and the person that I can't believe that that person believes that, uh, what, what's the motivation behind that belief? Is, is it for, is it fear-based? Probably. Is that bad? not it doesn't have to be bad for me it's not healthy for that person how many fear-based beliefs do i have a lot so we're already getting to some common ground there they have a a fear-based belief and i have fear-based beliefs too another thing that i have to remember is that um i think one of the reasons why the pendulum is starting to kind of swing back toward the middle is because I've seen people on both sides be less sure about what they were positive was true. And once everybody gets a little less sure of what their positive is true, it, it, it creates a little more graceful conversation that happens. Um, and, uh, and then really if I can find the reflection of myself and that person, then it's easier for me to, um, you know, be with that person. My default used to be to use Enneagram language, just to use a common language that isn't that isn't usually a trigger for people. Joe and I have a new thing we're trying. I don't know how it's going to go yet, but so far it's okay. I I sometimes say things publicly that I then deeply regret. Uh, more often I say things publicly that they deeply regret. <laughs> like years later or minutes later? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it takes me a while. But I, I publicly said, you know, um, it, it seems to me, and, and this is math three, I don't understand COVID time in my brain, but three or four years ago I said it, during the great political divide, you know, maybe we need to get together with our friends, people we have history with, and agree that we're not going to stop talking to one another, and we're not going to stop being together, and we're not going to avoid talking about the things that we feel strongly about, but we are going to avoid talking about them in ways that are um, angry and mean. And what we did is we happened from a women's retreat that I probably did 20 years ago. I have a bag of clay hearts that have words on them, patience. 
gratitude, hope, all, all kinds. And we are having conversations at our table with people there who don't necessarily agree. But you can only respond to what somebody else says by drawing a heart out of the bowl, and you have to respond using the sentiment that's on the heart. So you just don't get to be a jerk because no heart says just be a jerk. And so then you get to use the kind of words that Aaron's talking about, and you get to say, I feel this way because I'm insecure. That might be on the heart. I am behaving the way I am. Faithful might be on the heart because it feels like I'm being faithful to what is mine to do. And once you put a boundary that everybody can see at the same time that is set up so that it can't be incendiary, then you have a new way of having a conversation with people that you've loved for a long time but don't agree with. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this. I'm not sure it's a belief yet. It's still a hope maybe, but the belief is becoming uh, more clear to me with every passing day. I think there's a chance that the great tragedy of Ukraine in the last nine feels like 90 days of our lives as human beings who are put together in a way that we intuitively care for and have a heart for other people might, just might call forth from us a different way of expressing ourselves and it might come from a place of gratitude and a deeper awareness than from, you know, boredom and everything's the way it's been for the last ever how many years, which would be four years ago. And so I'm just going to kind of energize my life by getting all whipped up about this. And if that doesn't happen to us, then we got a lot of work to do. I'm hopeful for that. And you can make your own hearts. You know, yours can say, don't be an ass. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like it, 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 I don't recommend that. Although I, I did make a paper one for one for ours when I thought that could happen. Joe made me take it out. But I'm just, all I'm saying is there is a way to call people to their better selves. We just don't know how to use them. And if we try to do it from within us instead of with a tangible something, then it doesn't work. We had a conversation recently with Brian McLaren when we were in, in preparation for the upcoming event. And he's more socially political than LTM. Is that the right way to say that? Yes. Okay. So as he was sharing some of the things, what I, one of the things that I said, I was like, here's the deal, you know, talking about politics at an event. I said, the thing that I've witnessed in every conversation is that the point of their conversation is to convince the other person. And it's not going to happen. So I don't know what rock that is or beanbag that you toss at someone when <laughs> they're doing that. But if that's the goal is to convince the other person, yeah, yeah, what a waste of time. That's what I think was so great about being, knowing what, that for myself, I wanted to get the vaccine and then having had some sign, 
side effects from the vaccine. So it was like I kept go- being able to go like, oh, I'm still following myself. But guess what? You were there was something too like this in the conversation we were had. So let's talk about it a little more. It's like, so it was like every time something different happened, it was just really nice to be able to like, it was almost like I could connect with another person and be like, well, like I, like I'm not for sure, but I can just say this is my experience. And like, um, we're all going to make it, you know, we're going to keep going. And I think got things got so far out of hand that, People went from trying to convince the other person that I'm right and you need to think what I think. I think it it kind of became, I'm doing all this big in the room, big talk, because I'm afraid I'm not right. It's always that, yeah. Is anybody else into sports or sports television? Well, it's ruined by that it now, because of technology, you have you can get the highlights and the scores from on your phone within seconds so all that they put out on tv now are two talking heads just yelling at each other and that's all that's on tv whether it's sports or news so then that example is set so then we're like all right i I think just unconsciously that's how we're supposed to talk about anything is let's sit down and just yell at each other and well well, you're exactly right joel and you're on to something in a big way that that's you you bring that over into the conversation that we have about God have you ever listened to someone talking about their connection to God and you can tell they are in no way trying to convince you of anything it's just so beautiful to listen to and you connect to it and you're like oh my gosh thank you like it becomes this other energy and instead of this idea of proselytizing in the full time, you know, where you're trying to convince some someone that your belief about something is the right belief and the true belief, instead of just having that, it's not, that's what we say about the Renewal Center. We're not trying to convince other people what to believe. We've found what we believe and, we, and we're asking ourselves, what does that look like in the world for us to be in this world? This is what it looks like on any given day. So you're right. Whenever there's this idea of trying to convince each other something is your way, then, uh, yeah, it goes downhill fast. Giuseppe, can you talk about, number one, that your commitment is, always will be, to, and that you live it to preach the gospel, and how preaching the gospel cuts through all of it. When one dares to preach the gospel, you can't find a place on your side to land because the gospel is bigger than that. I think that for me has to begin with uh, the understanding that with nothing having been done on my part, nothing having been deserved on my part, no great effort on my part, one who is divine, who is holy, who is bigger than I am, that we call by many different names, God, Yahweh, Allah, whatever, brought me into being, and because I'm a Christian, and 
have read through the scriptures, my understanding is that that Holy One that brought me into being has made a promise to lead, guide, direct, care for, love, forgive uh, me over and over and over and over and over again. As a Christian, I understand that to be lived out in its fullest form in the person of Jesus the Christ, who came among us to show us how to live in right relationship with God and with one another. So my responsibility and my obligation is more than anything else is to strive to follow the way of Jesus. In trying to do that, I'm trying to be faithful to that way, and my responsibility as a representative minister of Christianity is to preach that way of Jesus, both by what I say and what I do, how I live my life, and and the things that are I'm about. Uh, so that is primary for me, is to be a proclaimer of the gospel and of the good news, as I understand it. And that's what you do, and that's what you're talking about when you circle around, and you go back and say, you know, I get it. I, like, I hear you, and I see yeah. you. I see you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do when you kneel here and plant a seed. And that's what you do, and that's what y'all do here. And I'm telling you, these four human beings are better at that than I am. And that's a fact. So don't, don't go, oh, that can't possibly be true. It is so true. So since Joel... Uh, started doing recovery work, there are times when I am just being judgmental and behaving badly, and my oldest son will say something like, well, we don't know their story. (sighs) Ugh. (laughs) I know that I have to listen and learn from their faith experience in order to deepen my own. And when we get into my denomination is better than yours, I'm better than you, I'm holier than you, all that stuff, there's nothing receptive in any of that. Well, what I just tried to explain played out in real time. Did you guys hear when the Reverend was talking? That's exactly what I was talking about. Like, you're refreshed and connected in remembering your own relationship with God whenever you hear the reverend talk about God. And by the way, um, if there's anybody in the room that hasn't ever heard the reverend, reverend pray to God, it, it's, it, it brings me right to the throne room. I, I'm going to stop bragging on the reverend, but I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much for stopping yeah. that. Yeah. We, got the man, we got the man here. It'll be a good way to close it I, out shortly. Bef- before we close out, I'd like to say one thing about shame. Anybody ever had that? <laughs> no? <laughs> Anybody in the heart try? I mean, it doesn't have to be. Got the soul of the shame on, on sale tomorrow at the workshop if you, if you need it. Seriously, if you haven't read that book. Yeah, I got oh. we got him in the car. We spent some time recently uh, up in Dallas. I think it was the end of January, beginning of February. And um, 
for whatever reason, uh, Suzanne spent three days straight only talking about shame, or at least that's what it felt like. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also talked about fear and anger. Uh, yeah, but but I only heard about shame, and um, and so there was some things that were said, or there was something that aligned in my own heart that that saw it. I saw it for what it was. I'm still, I'm like teary eyed right now, just still from the Reverend talking. Um, and I saw, I saw it for what it was and stepped out outside of it to look at it for a second and realized that like we were saying at the beginning, when you're a fish in water, you don't even know you're in water. That's how much we swim in shame our whole lives. And, um, and I got like five minutes without it, which I'm still riding high on, by the way, like here we are, uh, over like a month and a, over a month later, and I'm still experiencing the benefit of having a reprieve. I've had experiences in my life because of certain things. I could tell those long stories, which I'm not going to tonight, but where I've tried to explain to my community these third heaven experiences, maybe a two or three of them where, uh, I'm in the very presence of God. And whenever I'm in that presence, I know that nothing's wrong. All the things that I thought were wrong, weren't I I'm washed over by unconditional love and it changes me forever. And whenever I got that little reprieve, whenever I was up there with Suzanne, all the eloquent ways I've ever tried to explain my experiences, I can now say it was just me being myself without shame. I really believe for me uh, that's an experience of the kingdom of God is just me being myself without shame, which lets us know how much power it has. And it also gives me so so much hope that... um, I can keep getting to a deeper and deeper place where I remember that I don't have to carry it. I'm not doing God a favor, which I think I thought I was for a long time to carry it. I would do my ministry that way for years of like, if there's three people begging me to go see them and talk to them or go to lunch with me all on the same day, I'll think of the one I want to go with the least and go with that one because that's going to make God the most proud because that's the most sacrificial. God's like, you're putting that on you. Like looking forward to our lunch tomorrow, by the way, Aaron, (laughs) (laughs) you're the one I'm supposed to go with. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting because Joe says over and over and over and over that what God wants is mercy. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's not that easy, but that's all. Boy, we sure added to it. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking earlier, this is one of my notes. When you were talking about the, um, I don't know, I guess the specialness, how people feel when they come here. You're teaching Suzanne on fours. So this is a question because I always got to make sure I got it right. Fours feel like they're flawed in some way. So... That's first question. She's shaking her head. Yes. Aaron and Kelly, do y'all second that as our heads are straight? 
is that part of the gift of two fours running the show when people come in feeling flawed and the two of you are like, get like, really guess what, man? <laughs> like on the deepest level, me too. I think so. I, I think one of the most meaningful experiences I had with uh, Suzanne's teaching was the first one I ever had. And you were teaching on place and really kind of, I think from my heart of hearts, just like, it just was kind of an honor to kind of be able to step into a thing where I could give everybody a place. And it's also really insane to feel like I could work really hard at building a place for everyone to belong and in my foreness run around this place trying to figure out my place. <laughs> and so it's like, it just kept going, you know? And so it's like, like I just not only here's a people here's a place like these are our basic needs right what is the other one personality provision 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 plus yes and so those are the things that's where we're at we're the four p's you know that we kind of have going on in different ways with different people pulling up these different aspects but that okay now wait do you have a fourth p i only have three. Oh, i thought you provision place personality okay is there a fourth one because i you know people Oh, uh, okay. A okay. community, a community. There's a people <laughs> to belong, people. a people to belong to. There you go. That's what I, I got it. Got it. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, yes. yeah. So for somebody who feels like, even if I'm in the center of everything, I still feel like I'm on the outside of the conversation or I'm not quite all the sure. way in. Like it just was, is really, it's just meaningful to me. But um, if you were all the way in, then you would end up with some people you like more than other people mm-hmm. you already had a day with your people your people why would you circle the block for somebody who's not your people who's all dressed up and singing christian songs and talking about god hates masks Why? Well, to me that's evolution of mm-hmm. your understanding of your place yes i think it, all, it was that's what i'm saying like this it feels like this whole experience that we have going on here it's just it feels selfish to say it feels like it was very personal but I feel like it was personal and communal like there was just things like that were happening growing and developing and evolving and I sometimes feel like I had these walls and then I have to take a look at like what is the symbolism of this wall why does this have so much energy for me and who's got this here is it me or is it God and I, I think before, like, a lot of my art was always, like, these spirals. It's these spirals, the spiral art. And I always just thought I was just a dizzy, just a dizzy person, right? But now I just think it's just how it, this, is, this is how we move. We go from the out, we go outward, and then we come inward, and then it, just, it all comes back outward again. And it's just this labyrinth walk that we're doing. And along the way, like, if we can share the gospel by giving people place and provision and saying you belong, then, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Recognizing some of the oneness that Jesus prayed uh, in his last public not prayer. Not Enneagram oneness. That's exactly no, no, what no, I was thinking. Not one, not, no, yeah, not Enneagram oneness. <laughs> he nailed it perfectly. But just, you know, show them that they're one with each other and one with me in the same way I'm one with you. 
seeing that is what I think helps us to to have the equalizer and the healing aspects of this place. That's our biggest attribute. The the fact whenever I first asked Kelly, would you be a director? Uh, so we're just co-directors here. It's, I mean, she's an ordained pastor, but like there's other pastor pastors. When I say pastor pastors, I mean, hmm. people that are, weren't nearly as weird as she is. And, um, I'm sure he means weird in a good way. I, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, but I've also <laughs> never seen a pastor that was a healer the way Kelly is whenever I've seen her sit down with someone and they walk into her office and I see them walk back out of her office more whole, more healed than when they walked in. I don't see that that often uh, with, with a lot of pastors. And so for, for us to be able to say whatever this element is, whatever little gifts God gave us for us to be able to like fully give those away. Um, we're getting the healing right back onto us and it feels great. And I think it is, I think it is the me too. I think it is the, the divine me, me I think too. it is the me yeah. too. Not the hashtag. Not the hashtag me too. Just the divine, the divine. me too. We've been so saying we the divine me too. For, and, yeah. yeah uh, a lot going know, on. A lot divine happenstance, terms. divine me too. Yeah. Suzanne's teachings about, about fours. The empathy that you have for people covers all, all the different little, little things The uh, can, you know, hold pain with you and and stay in pain and I'm flawed your flaw like all just the empathy is something that I don't think the other numbers just have as a natural gift the thing that I want to add to that with the two of you is this and then you're gonna ask the last question and because we're over time there's healthy empathy and average empathy and unhealthy empathy and pathological empathy. Pathological empathy. I didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah. And, and, project, so, and projected empathy. Absolutely. And so it's not just about whether or not you have the gift. It's how much work you do on yourself so that you can use the gift in appropriate, loving, freeing, Christ-like ways. Okay, the question I'm asking these days at the end of my podcast, what are you curious about? Wow. I'm kind of curious about everything. But um, I'm really curious about the shift that I see happening. I'm really curious about seeing people lighting up in new ways. I'm really curious about, like... I'm, I'm how this spark I'm just it's almost like watching a spark in our groups that we have here like tr like just kind of lighting up and like touching each other and like maybe coming into the center room and I'm really curious if that's happening well it's got to be happening everywhere right and and just imagining if you can kind of feel it or see it moving around in the room I'm just really curious how it all starts to like you know, I mean, we watched a virus crawl across the earth. So what happens if a spark crawls across the earth? So I'm just really curious about that and hopeful. I'm somewhat curious about the same thing because I do think about it all the time. I'm just curious if there's if I'm going to see um, a, a, a cultural shift 
um, even on the other side of everybody's, you know, kind of the, 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 the death of a certain way of seeing institutional church. Cause I, I grew up in uh, pastors for generations and, uh, and so I ran away from it as far as I could before I, I, I ran into it. And I think one of the things that, that I, re- I remember I was like sitting on the edge of a dam and I told God that I was going to leave my faith and I, and I hoped that he was there when I got back and I so clearly felt God tell me he'd go with me. And that's, that's when everything kind of changed for me of like, could God be that? And, um, but, but I'm, I'm curious if I'm going to see a shift in, uh, overall culture about everybody remembering that there's hope, everybody remembering that this is all going somewhere and that the motivation behind everything ever created was love. And I'm curious if I'm going to like see culturally us living into that in my lifetime. Can I just say we're so thankful that the three of you came. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The real applause and the big applause. I guess it's an effort to keep me humble. He hits a button and he hears applause and I guess other people do, but I never get to hear it. Right. So thank you for uh, doing something I get to hear. Um, well, you know how much I love you and admire you and admire your work. I, I think the one-two punch that you have is that everybody's looking for hospitality and you probably know that I teach that I think the greatest form of hospitality is telling our stories. And then this uh, place that is so hospitable for such an experience um, is really obviously carrying uh, the handprint of good, good, good things. So keep it up. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We love you too. Thank you so much.